Hello and welcome to the Slingshot Group podcast, where our co-hosts bring keen insight to some of the most pressing issues facing nonprofit and church leaders today. Each episode features an in-depth interview with thought leaders, ministry practitioners, executives and artists who draw from their wealth of experiences to share valuable insights and lessons learned from the journey. And now, let's join our hosts for today's episode. Hello, welcome to Slingshot Group Podcast. This is David Miller. So excited to be with you. This is going to be a bit of a special episode. Rather than having an interview, as we do for so many of our other episodes, we really got the family together, the whole crew on one uh, recording, and we're just going to really talk about this same topic we first uh, introducing everybody we got brian taylor here hey everybody how's it going we have keith robinson what's up everybody and vance martin what's up hey that was a great intro by the way david good job hey you know i'm, I'm working hard at this i'm working hard at this uh it this, set the expectation high for this conversation but it it's, is, it's gonna it be is. good and it should set the, set the expectation high because today um, we're talking about something pretty important. We're talking about the first 90 days of your new role. And really specifically, we're going to uh, hone in on the top five mistakes that most new hires make in those first 90 days. And so I don't know. I mean, I'm sure none of you guys have ever made any mistakes mm -mm. in your new roles because you're all perfect in every way. I know I have made many mistakes in the first 90 days of new jobs and we'll we'll get into that but today um this is i think going to be one of those where especially hiring managers and or if you are starting a new role you're going to want to lean in on this one really start to understand have you seen these mistakes take place and we'll even talk about some ways to maybe help them to not happen so uh you guys good let's go ahead and jump right into the very first one uh, the very first of the five mistakes that are made in the first 90 days is that the new hire tries to change things without relational equity. Again, I'm sure none of you have ever experienced this. No. This is the way to think about this is to be, you know, we've all seen it. Um, it's that phrase, the bull in a china shop. And, and you know, like, I know what I'm supposed to do, and I don't need anyone's opinion. They hired me to make this decision. And, and, and if you've ever been on a team with that person, or if you've ever been that person, it never goes well. You guys yeah, have I'm, any experience I'm, with that? I'm going to volunteer myself for the first horror story on this one, uh, because it. my uh, early on in my ministry career, I came from the music business. So I was a musician, studio musician. And, and that was my frame of reference. And when I joined the staff, no one really explained to me the concept of, I guess, the people component of ministry. And after uh, sound check, when one of my vocalists left the platform in tears uh, because of how I had commented during the rehearsal, <laughs> uh, the way I would have uh, spoken to a musician at a gig or a session yeah. singer, um, I just want to yeah. tell you, Brian, I, I left our last podcast recording in tears. Um, so <laughs> I thought I was better. I'm still Vince. recovering. It's, you know, <laughs> we all have our growth edges. 
but so I mean, I, I think bull in a China shop was not my intention, but I just didn't know any better. And that expectation mm -hmm. was not set for me, uh, starting in this very different role, even though some of the components were the same uh, that I would have experienced at a musician, you know, as a musician in a rehearsal or at a gig. And I remember my uh, pastor sitting me down and saying, okay, let's talk about how to relate to people. Because if you burn the relational bridges, you're never going to be able to lead this group of people anywhere. It's everything has got to be relationship based, or you're going to do a massive disservice. And, you know, I, at the time I was, you know, I've worked since to develop the gift and skill of empathy in my life, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was something that I needed someone to set that expectation clearly for me uh, before I wrecked what ended up being a, a pretty great tenure um, at that position. Brian, as I listen to you talk about that, like you, I, I think I made the mistake of thinking that le being a leader was about making change happen, hmm. but really it's about managing change. And yeah. there's a difference between just having a great idea executing a great idea and bringing as many people along with you as possible. Oh, that's and, good. Absolutely. And, and I think as we mature, we get older too, like there's just this sense of, we don't want to do this alone because we know to make those kinds of changes and get to get people moving in the right direction. Yeah. We need all the help that we can get. I think it was John Maxwell. He said, or somebody, one of those leadership people, positional leadership is the lowest form of leadership. That's my and I think what you're talking, yeah, what you guys are talking about, it's leading from a position and not a relationship. Uh, it's a transaction versus a, a personal connection. You know, I need you to do this. You are a end. Um, you, you're a means to an end. Uh, you know, I think for, for me, for a long time, I saw people as a cog in my machine. Like, I just need you to do this so that I can have my ministry executed instead of the realization that those people, they are my ministry. Uh, and it's, it's about that relationship with them. Um, I can have all the wins in my program and what I'm doing, but if I'm scaring people off and I'm not developing those people, they really gain nothing short-term it's sacrificing long-term success for short-term gain gains. And it's yeah. not worth it. No, it's really good. Uh, a lot of times when we're walking with and coaching a new hire, you know, we walk them through that specifically. I mean, we even give them questions to go into, you know, and interview other staff members. We, we ask them about how are you building allies in this new role? I mean, it's, it's so important that you see the people that you get to work with as not, as not a means to an end or something to get around, but as, as truly an integral part of the ministry. And I think that, you know, Vance, saying that is, is an incredibly important point for that new hire as you're walking on the team. Um, it is true that you are the one that has to answer. This is, this is my mistake. You are the one that is going to have to answer for how ministry is going. And for some of us, that could turn into just putting your head down and barreling through anyone who yeah. gets in your way. Yeah. But the reality is that your longevity will not be helped by that. Yeah. And so I think that's, that's a huge, huge deal. Number two of the five mistakes is that uh, the new hire will passively follow the team's current playbook. Um, you know, the first one that we talked about, number one, is really kind of like hyper leading, like leading too much. This one, honestly, is about leading too little. Um, we come in and rather than taking any ownership, 
we just sit on the sidelines kind of saying, oh, that's what you did before. Perfect. I would love, I'll just stamp, step into that and do exactly what the person before me did. I, and, and, and I'll actually, um, when you do that, you, you know, you become a cheap imitation of the person that, that, that was there before you. And so there's something so important about understanding the playbook that you want to come in with, but not forgetting to have the relational equity. How have you guys seen this played out, you know, in the placements or in your own stories? Yeah. You know, one of the fun things that we get to do at our work at Slingshot is oftentimes, you know, people will sense that God's calling them to vocational ministry and they may be coming out of the marketplace. And I get to interact like you guys do with a lot of marketplace leaders who are kingdom minded and want to leverage their gifts and their skills for the church or for a nonprofit. And so it's an exciting thing. Um, and if you've ever been there as a leader, I know we've got executive pastors that are listening and others that have come from the marketplace. And I remember it's been a, a few years now, but a brand manager for a major corporate brand, if I said the name, you'd know it, um, surfaced and began praying about an opportunity to join the staff of an amazing church and went through the whole process. He got the gig, landed the role, dream job, you know, calling to ministry. And I, I remember, you know, him calling me soon after. And, you know, he's talking to me about their current playbook and how it's inadequate and how it's not going to work. And there was this temptation to just kind of go with the flow. And, you know, it's that balance between getting relational equity, but also realizing, and this is what I had to encourage him with. And that is that if you've been brought in from the outside, you've not been brought in to play it safe. You've been brought in because the fresh eyes that you bring on that circumstance and the situation where the ministry is at today, you've been brought in with special gifts and callings to actually help them to break through that. And if you just kind of resign yourself to being a, a fly on the wall and not bringing thought leadership, um, then you're going to quickly get a reputation as someone who's just going with the flow, not really being yeah. that change maker that you were brought in to be. So what I would say is learn how to advocate for your ideas without always saying, well, when I was at this massive brand, right? Cause that turns people off. Or when I was at this church, if you start every sentence that way, you're probably not going to get your ideas heard very quickly or um, at least not in a way that's transformative for the team. So it's, it's learning how to take the experience of where you've been and bring that to the team so that you can lead them to that next level. Yeah, I think, you know, on the flip side, like uh, from an organizational standpoint, the leaders that are listening, if they're aware uh, that maybe you had a, you had a long tenured leader in a certain spot, and now that role is transitioned. I think one of our responsibilities as leaders is to, to knock down those roadblocks and make it easy for the new hire to share those ideas and share the concepts by laying the groundwork uh, that this is not about right or wrong. It's about different. It's about new and fresh. And this is not a comparison game, you know, and this is not dishonoring what has been, but helping the team uh, that they're leading and the team that's around them uh, to keep their eyes facing forward. And as the leaders communicate and demolish those roadblocks, it creates a environment where that new leader stepping in can thrive more quickly uh, in bringing that fresh perspective. Yeah. I think too, you know, when, when you get into a new environment, a wise leader will listen. And I think what, what this is really talking about is, yes, we want to listen, we want to absorb, 
But if you never reflect that back, if it's just a stance of receiving, but you're never taking that information of listening to what's happening in this meeting, observing what's happening over here. If you're, if you're just taking all that in, but never taking that and processing it and then putting that back out into the organization, you're not bringing value at all. Uh, you're not helping anybody by just sitting back and, and listening. It requires a forward facing giving and both giving and receiving. And both these one and two are, you know, it's, it's extremes. It's right. trying to figure out the middle. Don't be over the top, but also you do have a voice. You're there for a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's huge. I, I think it's important for people to understand the kind of leader they are. I think each leader has a, probably a, a natural propensity to be one of those two. Um, you know, I mean, I think that those are two of the more common, either an incredibly um, aggressive leader or an incredibly passive leader. And, and the reality is to what you're saying, Vance, you, you really need to have both. And Brian, I want to highlight something that you mentioned. Um, man, if as, if at the leadership that's kind of already there, if you can set the tone and really help welcome this new hire on, like I'm a part of a couple of searches right now and a couple of teams right now that are bringing on new hires, but, and they know that something in that ministry needs to be changed. They're not waiting for the new hire to be the one to get the blood on their hands. Yeah. They're, they're trying to set the tone and set the environment before the new hire ever gets there. So that that new hire has a lot of early wins when things are moving forward. I mean, there's, there's a general rule. And I don't know if you guys have heard this, so help me with this if you have. There's a general rule that says, you know, especially when it comes to the, like the systems and the main, the public um, offerings of a, of a ministry. So let's say it's a children's ministry. You don't want to change a lot of those, the, those big buckets in the first six months to a year, unless they're broken. If they're hemorrhaging yeah. in some way, th- there'll be times that you are brought in to make bold changes soon. And I think that that's part of why that early, you know, the other, the leaders that are already there need to set you up for success. But there are other times that you need to leave kind of the big buckets alone, but you can change the underpinnings of the why Mm -hmm. you do the things you do. Why do we lay the groundwork? You lay the groundwork for when you are going to make that change. And I think that that's, you know, those changes will never be easy, but they are necessary. And for you to be leading in the midst of it is such a huge deal. But most people focus solely on the production. And they Mm -hmm. think, well, those are the only things that I really should be changing when it's, no, you should be changing the way that you, you know, really lean into your leaders. You should be, you could be changing the way that you talk about why you meet on Wednesday night instead of on Friday night. You can talk about all of these, you know, core values that you can now interject into the new ministry without it being something that you, you know, again, that bull in a china shop um, style of leading. Yeah. And I um, think, sorry to add to that. Um, you know, I think when you're in those positions where things are broken, uh, I think a lot of leaders shy away from, uh, or maybe try to like almost like manipulate relationship or try to make it seem like there's more relationship than there is. And, and one of the things that I, a leader challenged me early on to do is just kind of admit the lack of relational equity 
yeah. and invite the person you're talking with to say, hey, I need you to loan me a bit of relational equity. We're gonna have to step over this yeah. awkwardness together um, because I, I wish I could wait for the next six months until we had time to sit and do coffee and do lunch and do all, but we, we have to get there. And just establishing that baseline, understanding like, yeah, you and I both know this is awkward right now. But we're going to we're going to go through it together. And hopefully we build that equity through the change and, and through the challenge. Yeah, and I that's, think that's so good because the empathy that you're talking about is what actually will continue to, you know, bring you trust and bring confidence in your leadership from, you know, from the people that you're leading. And so just to name it, Brian, I think that's an incredible point. And so often we live in the gray and the ambiguity of how someone's going to receive this when the reality is if we feel compelled that this is a change that must happen, there's a deep conviction about it, then we have the responsibility to get out in front and to invite people to go on that journey with us. Yeah, it's really good. All right, you guys ready for number three? Yes, sir. Let's do it. Number three is that the new hire, this is the mistake, that they make assumptions versus clarifying expectations. Um, you know, here's, here's something that I think is, is more common than we think. It is common to bring the expectations from your previous role with you yeah. into your new role. Um, especially if you were successful, I would say, especially if you were really yeah. good and you had a lot of success in your last role, you can come into this one thinking, I'm just going to do the exact same thing. And, and, and maybe that's not really what this new team needs from you. And what they actually need could be something that, that, that you need to learn or something that you need to lean into. And so we don't ask enough questions. We don't really lean in with our supervisor and say, you know, hey, how do, you, how do I know I'm doing a, a good job? Instead, we, we come in with these assumptions, either again, that we brought from our last role or that we got in the interview process. Because sometimes, yeah. you know, we latch onto that one phrase we heard in an interview and we think that is the law and that's everything that we should do moving forward. And the reality is it might not be. Yeah. And so... Talk to me a little bit, you guys, how you've seen this at play. Oh, I, uh, I mean, you guys didn't know me when I was a teenager, but I was wish a pretty I big did. Deal. Vance. That was yeah. a pretty big deal. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, <laughs> Vance, you forget, we, you know, we, we've already told a story about when you set a girl's hair on fire when you were a teenager. <laughs> so, so you can, dress, you it can wasn't say her hair. Come whatever on. you want in this about how big a deal you were, but you said, you know, a but I was 17 fire. leading a camp of people who don't forget. You yeah. know, but that's all right. That's yeah, good point. That's, good you know, point. It's context. I'm a fire starter. Um, <laughs> you know, when I growing up, I, I really I stood on the shoulders of my my dad. You know, I had so many experiences that if it weren't for him in ministry, you know, big churches and other things, I wouldn't have the experience that I had when I was young. I mm. because I did have experiences uh that normal teenagers or early 20 somethings would have, you know, my very first job when I was 17 was I was the assistant children's pastor of a church of 3000. Like that's wow. just not, that was, that was my entry point. And so for me, I, I stepped into a role, um, in my mid twenties having, you know, 10, 15 years of experience already and really feeling like I had this thing figured out. And for me, that was the first time that I had transitioned from maybe more of a supporting type role into at a at a larger church into being the lead person. And the expectation that I had coming in, so I, I, children's ministry is my background. I was the guy on the stage and could do craft and experience for kids like nothing else. Like it was amazing. 
And so I had done that where I came from. And so I did that at this new, at this new church and had this amazing experience. And the thing that I failed to understand where, where I missed it and I made some assumptions is that was, if I just did that, then I was going to be successful because I had been successful before. But what I missed was I wasn't a le- I wasn't really building a team. I was the one doing all the stuff. And while I was on the stage in the elementary ministry, there was a preschool ministry that desperately needed my leadership, help and attention, coaching. And I didn't even know how to do it. And I think there was a double miss of, ex- of expectations because not only did I not understand that that was the expectation, I didn't know that's what I needed to do. I thought I was winning. But I think in some degree, my leaders, their expectation was that I would be on the stage, but also lead. And so mm-hmm. for me, there was a double miss expectation because I didn't ask the right questions. One, I really didn't know what to ask. I was should have never been put in this position <laughs> at my age and was in way over my head. Um, and, and so what I got to, to learn through is fumbling through. And for me, that was like the, the, um, I was fumbling through learning how to be, to, to truly lead. And that really was the catalyst that led to my failure of what I then understood looking back when I went to my next large church after I left there to go, okay, I understand now what it takes. Hmm. And so the, the danger is for new hires. If you're just making assumptions and not clarifying expectations, the, the, the road that that leads to it's, it's, it's failure. It's miss when there's misalignment of expectation, it brings frustration on everybody's part. So I definitely lived up to this mistake. Yeah. I, I think Vance, you're making a a huge point. I appreciate the story, even though you were obviously so impressive as a teenager. Um, but, but, but here's, here's what I think is, is important for people that are listening to understand is that this goes beyond, you need, you need to help clarify the expectations that you have. You need to help Mm -hmm. clarify the expectations that your supervisor has, but you also need, there are other groups, you know, you need to understand the expectations of your coworkers. So people who are not, you're not leading and who are not leading you, but they still have expectations for your ministry. You have to understand the expectations of the people who you are, you are leading. If you have a staff, if you have volunteers that are looking to you for something specific, their expectation might not only be different from yours, it might be different from your bosses. And that, that can get really, really messy in the thick of all of this. And so, you know, again, um, you don't just look up and you don't just look inward. You have to look down and to the side to make sure that the expectations are clear all around you. There's this phrase that that's been kind of, you know, um, burrowed into my mind and, and, you know, for, for quite a while, you've probably heard it if you've listened to the podcast for a little while, but it's this idea of disappointment comes when expectations aren't met. And, and, and there's a reality. Mm-hmm. Everyone has expectations. And, you know, and so if I have no expectation for you, I can't be disappointed by you. But the right. reality is in ministry, someone does have an expectation. Yeah. For you. And oh, in yeah. fact, multiple people have multiple expectations. So to understand what the game, what the game you're actually playing will help you to not make some of these same mistakes, to not be the bull in the china shop, to not be the passive leader that, that isn't moving anything forward and what actually needs to be moved, you know, what actually does need to be moved forward and focused on could be really different. All right, 
Moving to number four. Um, number four mistake that new hires make uh, is that they don't know themselves or what they have to offer in the new role. You'd be surprised how many leaders I interact with through coaching and staffing who really don't know anything about the way they're wired. They don't know what their skills are. They only know what they've been good at so far. And, yeah. and the amount of leaders that I've talked to who are just like, I don't even know how I got here. I just kind of was successful and it just kept happening. And this is where I am now. And they don't even know that that's what they want to be doing with their life, with their ministry. Um, and so really understanding who you are, why you're in the role you're in, what drives you is incredibly important. I, I'm sure that, that you've seen this um, in some of the ministries that you guys have been a part of. Uh, share a time that this has become true in, in, in your story. Yeah, uh, you know, there's so many facets to self-awareness that are important uh, because the same people that maybe don't know who they are can also unknowingly discount what they've done and what they have experienced. Hmm. Because when you're good at something, you assume that everyone else is good at the same things. And then you step into these environments and the things that you can actually bring to the table um, that are strengths of yours, you discount or downplay. I was talking to a candidate just today and I was looking at their resume and the churches that they'd been a part of going, wow, you've been exposed to some really spectacular things and systems and processes. And every, with every statement almost that they were making to me as a part of our conversation, they were like, yeah, I, you know, I know I'm young. I know I don't have a lot, you know, under my belt. I haven't seen and I'm And, you know, as someone who, who, you know, cares for them. I'm saying, wait, don't discount what you've experienced. Don't yes. discount the value um, that you bring. And so that self-awareness piece um, is so important. I mean, going back to my horror story, right? A little bit of self-awareness would have gone a long way in yep. making sure that I wasn't having team members walk off a platform in tears, yep. you know, understanding that I can, I can add value to them musically. I can add value to them in my, my spiritual leadership of them, but the way that I communicate it, the way that I speak into it, the way I bring and add that value, it really does. It really does matter. I think self-awareness is one of the most critical components of a successful leader. Mm -hmm. Leaders that aren't self-aware, um, the only person that doesn't know the challenges is them. Everybody else around them sees it so very clearly. So the more that you can do to know yourself, to confront yourself, to deal with yourself, uh, to dig into your own story, um, the, the better off you'll be in the long term. There's so much out there to help you know a self-aware leader, to help build that if you don't already have it. You know, I'd love to hear, do you guys have some favorites that, you know, whether that's personality assessments or, you know, other, other tools that you've seen used well in this stuff? Uh, I love the Enneagram. I think it's something that for me, it helps in, in most of the coaching that I'm doing. I'm utilizing that because it just gives some common language around mm -hmm. the shadow side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when somebody can, you know, take one of those assessments, it's not about the assessment. I don't think it's about the tool. It's mm -hmm. about the conversation that it can create. It's sure. about creating the awareness and asking questions, whether you're doing that on your own or with somebody else. It's, it's, it's helping reveal a blind spot. A blind spot is something you can't see yourself. Those assessments sometimes are able to shine some light on an area that you can't see yourself. And I think for this, you know, sometimes we think about when, 
when you say somebody doesn't know themselves or they don't know what they have to offer, I first immediately thought of, of like somebody that's insecure, hmm. somebody that is timid and, you know, they're not bold. And I think that could be the default, but it's actually, I see it more often the other way, inssecurity that produces overconfidence. Yes. And fake not it, knowing it you make it. Absolutely. I'm yes. just, I'm afraid in this new role that I'm going to be seen for who I am. Hmm. So I've got to put on, you know, this front of, I do have it all figured out. You guys hired you. The best decision you made was to hire me and yeah. really puff yourself up. And, and, and that, that's not helpful for you or every, everybody, they, they sense that the people on your team right. can sense that because they see the product and so the more that you know your blind spots, the more that you can have humility, the more that you can have vulnerability, it, it sets you up well to serve and to, to accomplish things faster. Be okay with who you are. Yeah, I love that. I, I, I think that there's something, uh, first, I was going to ask you guys, have you seen those memes that have gone around that, that are like, um, you know, Enneagram is just, uh, is just a way for millennial to think they're more awesome than they actually are. Convince <laughs> me otherwise. Like yes. I think those are hilarious. Um, but, but I'm with you. I, I, I love Enneagram. I, I love, um, you know, there's like this, this school of assessments kind of called the Jungian assessment. So it's all, these are all based on kind of the Jungian model of understanding. So that's DISC, that's Myers-Briggs, that's, um, you know, insights, you know, will help you to understand some of those different things. And then I really, you know, even leaning into like strength finder, I, yeah. I, I think that someone that really understands themselves can probably has some understanding of each of those areas. Like strength finder isn't about your personality. It's kind of more about your talents, your strengths, you know, the Jungian side of disc and, you know, maybe it's about a wiring, um, you know, and who you are. And then something with, with Enneagram, there, there's something about seeing the totality of how those come together. That's really beautiful. Um, and yet I also think that they are used in such a way that they're not intended to be used. I think, you know, the amount of times I've done a search where someone says, Hey, if, if, if this new hire is not an eight or if this new hire is not a, a seven or a three, you know what I mean? Like where they, they'll, they'll put a stipulation on it needs, the person needs to be this exact thing. And the reality is like, those are not intended to be definers of who you are. They're entire yeah. in, intended to be indicators of the way that you're wired. And, and so there are healthy versions and unhealthy versions. I can't tell you the amount of times that someone was miscategorized um, and later on in life understood I'm actually this, I'm not that. And so, so, you know, understanding yourself in such a way where you're letting other people speak into you, where you're leaning into some of these assessments, where you're really um, allowing yourself. Again, I, I think that, I don't remember which, which one of you said this, but it's, it, it really allows um, the semblance of vulnerability to be able mm -hmm. to, to say, I, I, I think that I tend toward this. Um, and then allowing yourself to be in the midst of, of that and, and, and to kind of celebrate the way that you're wired. Yeah. You know, the other side of those assessments yeah. is I talk to people all the time that'd be like, I'm this, but I wish I was something else. I mean, I'm, I'm right. that way. Vance, you're, you know, I, I know you're a seven. Um, mm -hmm. I would say probably anyone that's ever heard of this podcast knows you're a seven. <laughs> yeah, um, and man, Sevens I, are the best though. I mean, gosh. I mean, and I always wished that I was one. I mean, I always was like, gosh, why can't I be like that? You know, and I always wanted to, to be that. And it wasn't honestly until recently the last, you know, five or six years that I started embracing the way that I'm wired and what's unique yeah. and good about the way that I'm wired changed the way I lead. Cause I wasn't trying to lead from my, you know, from my, uh, my lack of strength 
or my right. weakness. I wasn't trying to become somebody else. That's exhausting. I actually was leading as myself and it yes. changed the whole game. Yeah. And until you know yourself, you don't know what to say no to. Yeah. It's good. And we're talking about assuming a new role, whether you're being brought in from the outside or promoted from within. And so if you know yourself well, then you can establish boundaries pretty quickly and not be everyone's hero or attempt to be, yeah. which is a little insight into my Enneagram, which is a three. Mm. And so that overachiever kicks in yeah. like day one and it's how fast can I go and how far? And so what may be, you know, something that you can lean into um, as a strength also, as Van said, has a, sh a shadow side. So knowing yourself gives you the ability to look at every opportunity through the lens of is, is this what I'm best at? Is this what I'm supposed to do in this season, in this moment? And it's a journey of self-discovery. And I would just say this, that um, you're going to need some other people around you to help hold up that mirror. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word. That's huge. Uh, I, um, I, I want us to jump into the final one. Well, let's look at number five here um, of the top five mistakes that a new hire can make is that they come in and wing it while hoping for the best. Hmm. Um, man, that even just that word wing it has become a trigger word for me. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, especially as, as, you know, as a younger leader, you know, there's just this, this idea of if I wing it, then I'm more authentic, right? You know, if, if I just, yeah. if, if I over plan, then, then I'm, then I'm not actually being present and, and authentic in the way that I lead. And, and what I found is that with this mistake is usually made with that incredibly talented person that just yep. loves people like just what they want most is just to be is just to see people and care for them and love them well and all of these really really good things but that talent and that love for people um kind of causes them to shy away from making a plan mm -hmm. that that it, it it causes them to say actually what i hear is people saying if i make too many plans then i can't be the way that i really am and those are the ones that I think, um, again, this person is typically very loved until it falls apart. It's, and it's sudden. This mistake, you were loved until it falls apart and they realize that you were just winging it. So how is that, I think how you, is that lived out for you, you guys? Describe my ministry. David, you just described my ministry in a nutshell. I was, I was looking into your soul like, as I was doing I it. know you were. Yeah, yeah. You Have you been following me around my whole life? My whole <laughs> done life. <laughs> You're like the um, woman at the well, Jesus. Come see the man that told me about everything I ever did. <laughs> Pretty much. That's what I just... So, you so know, the, I think, you know, as a as we're going through these and we, we're talking about the Enneagram, I think all the numbers have different propensities to, to different one of these mistakes for a seven. This is probably one of the biggest. Hmm. Uh, I remember stepping into my first full-time student ministry role and was at a smaller church. My dad was the pastor. And again, I had, I'd come up growing up in some of the largest student ministries, seeing, see, seeing all the, you know, the hazers and lasers, and, uh, you know, I, w I wanted to put on the show and here I had, you know, five students in my first night of student ministry. Hmm. And I, I basically just, I, I, 
I did exactly this. I, I, I was winging it all the time, just coming up with whatever. Let's try this. I mean, throwing spaghetti on the wall. Let's see what, let's see what sticks. And I could not get any traction. One of the things that I learned very early on that hit me like a ton of bricks is the danger of winging it. It puts you in a position where you're relying on your own abilities and strengths and not creating space for God. Yeah. Because we can get somebody that is talented, somebody that can just walk into the room and make everybody else feel like, well, that was a great experience. I don't have to plan. What happens is you edge out God. And that's what I did really early on in my ministry. I didn't put the forethought and planning and create the structure that actually enabled God to move and God to do things in my ministry. Hmm. And if we, if we are winging it, what it really is saying is I'm relying on me and my ability and not mm-hmm. on God. Yeah. The, the amount of times that I had somebody th- that I was either working with or that I was coaching that said, you know what, if you're in the room, I know it'll be okay because you'll figure it out as you go. But what really is going to show me how well prepared you are is how it goes when you're not in the room because yeah. you can't, you can't wing it then. You have yeah. no ability to, to make sure that, that, you know, to make those small corrections and adjustments throughout an event. And so when you're not in the room is when I really want to see how much leadership you ha- you possess and if you're winging it or not. You know, for me, this is a stewardship issue. Mm-hmm. You know, as you talk, it's, it's and I, I see it a lot, obviously, as a worship pastor, you know, um, worship leaders are totally prepared all the time, all the time. Yeah. You know, it's anytime you, you've got a skill, like you were just saying, Dave, like when I know when I'm on a platform, I can, I can kind of go with whatever comes my, my way. And that just Mm -hmm. comes from 20 years of leading worship and, you know, doing, doing this week in week out. But, you know, I, I always coach the worship leaders that I'm, I'm mentoring and leading like it's a stewardship issue. If mm-hmm. you're not prepared, like you're not being spontaneous, you're being lazy. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's an excuse uh, to say, hey, I will just see what the Lord does or we'll just see, you know, we'll just make it ha-. like that's an excuse to excuse laziness, because the truth is, you know, everywhere in Scripture where you see God moving, he moves with the plan. You, you never see a moment where God shows up. It's like, you know what? I think I'll do this right here right now. In fact, it's like over centuries, mm. God is orchestrating this plan. Yeah. And if he's, mm-hmm. if he's our model, right? Jesus is our model. Even when, even when he had those suddenly moments, he was always, it was like on the way to do something else, you yeah. know? And so he had a plan. He was able to respond to what was right in front of him because he was on a plan and he, he had a place mm. to go. And that's when we're leading. That's what I say. If you have a plan, you can depart from it because you know where you're at, you know where you're going. And so you can take the detour. Um, but it's a stewardship issue. And if you, if you take seriously what God has put in your hands um, and you recognize that your leadership, your ministry is, is stewarding influence that's from him. It's a platform that he's built. The church is something he's building. Mm-hmm. Um, that should inform how we prepare. That should inform how we show up. That should inform how we serve. It should inform how we equip the people that we lead. Um, because it is, it's a stewardship issue. It's not just a leadership issue. It's, it's a stewardship thing. Makes me think that. of, it makes me think of improv leadership. You know, the difference in, um, 
it's winging it is coming up with a plan on the spot and not being prepared. Whereas we, when we talk about improv leadership or improv, it's from a position of, I have worked so hard at this skill and hone yeah. this skill that I can step, I can step up to the microphone and, and I can do the improv comedy, not based on something I'm pulling out of the air, but I'm refined. I've refined something over years or, yeah. or do a, a jam session with these amazing musicians because they know their craft. And like you, you were saying, Brian, it's honing in and in being a good steward of the gifts that God's given us and leveraging for the kingdom for the long haul and not the here and now, the right now. So good. As I listen to that, I think of the, you know, the scripture that comes to mind is a man's heart plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Yeah. Yeah. And there isn't necessarily a, a template for what a plan should look like. And so it's easy to run in those first 90 days on pure adrenaline and just let that try to carry you. But adrenaline will not sustain longevity of impact over time. And so I think what you guys are talking about is it's compelling in that we can make plans, but still leave room for God's spirit mm -hmm. and winds of God's spirit to blow yep. and enter, you know, into what we're doing and interrupt if needed. Supervisor, here's my 90 day plan, right? And it's leaving that room for God to do what he wants to do and being open, Brian, I'll use your word to the suddenly, to the surprise to the interruption, because it could be that in the plan of us heading toward this thing that God's put in our heart to do, that he sends something else or someone else along the way. And it wasn't until we were planning to go that direction that we were actually open to yeah. that opportunity. And I really like doing this with you guys. The conversations like this honestly make me better. I, I know that it does uh, for anyone who's listening out there, but but honestly, being kind of in the room with you three, you're so good at this and it, it continues to, to really pour into who I am as a leader. Um, you know, for you listening, maybe you're listening to this and, and, and you're like, man, you missed one. There's another mistake out there that you guys aren't that you don't have in your top five and, and you should. We want to hear from you. I would love if you would you know tweet out there, put it on social, hit us up, send us an email. Let us know what should be added to this list. We're actually going to be turning this into a top five list that goes out as a white paper. And so you can download it with a little more definition and some understanding around this. Or, or maybe you want to tell us your story. We'd love to hear those as well. Maybe you have uh, one of these five just jumps off the page and you're like, oh my gosh, you are totally reading my mail right now. That is me all the way. We'd love to hear the story. Maybe even celebrate how you came out on the other side. Uh, the reality is um, we think that it is incredibly important that you have somebody to talk to about this stuff. I mean, Keith, you talked about it early on, a new hire to have that outside voice, that person that's, that's really able to help you and hold up a mirror and show you a little bit more about how you, who you are and how you're doing. We would love to do that as Slingshot Group. If you're interested in understanding more about the first 90 days, the power of the first 90 days, the importance of this chunk of time, we have a coaching offering. And you can find out more about this over at slingshotgroup.org coaching. Now, stay tuned as we get to hear a little bit from Stan as we do at the end of every episode this season uh, for our improv leadership moment. <laughs> Woo! 
Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to that part of the episode that we're calling Improv Leadership Moments. Leadership is not just a series of tasks that we're responsible for doing. It's an art that involves imagination, that requires innovation, and demands an emotional engagement that at times calls for improvisation. At Slingshot Group, our co-founder and chief culture officer, Stan Endicott, and vice president of coaching, David Miller, developed the improv leadership coaching model to help leaders build trust, encourage risk-taking, increase collaboration, and promote creativity. Improv leadership is based on five leadership competencies that leaders can develop to initiate powerful conversations and create memorable, life-changing moments for their teams. So, without further delay, let's jump into today's improv leadership moment. So let's move on to our second competency, precision praise. Those are two words that you don't hear often together precision praise it's not just praise what's the difference well what is precision praise and what's the difference in praise and precision praise precision praise is acknowledging somebody's accomplishment without it being flattery yeah i remember i remember as we were developing this competency you know i was sitting with stan and said um are we just telling people to be nicer to each other are we just like telling you know leaders being kind and he said, you know, David, here's the thing. If more leaders understood the concept of precision praising, fewer of their staff would quit. Wow. Uh, I heard uh, the psychologist Larry Crabb say one time, it's not so much that people know that you love them, it's that they feel that you love them. Yes. Yeah, we, uh, keeping with improv, the, the concept, we, we started listening to a lot of Nate Bargatze around this this thing because a comedian it really is all about timing right you know you can say something funny but if you don't say the right timing or if you don't know the audience mm -hmm. then you start to lose you know kind of the, the the genius of it and so in in precision praising we started to to say how how can we help leaders to know who their audience is what they're trying to accomplish with this praise, how they're trying to direct and move their team forward. And we started kind of getting into some some really fun tool making. You know, we have this um, praise aiming matrix that we that we came up with, which starts talking about how do you uh, if you know what where you're trying to move this person, then this kind of praise mm -hmm. is what will have the weight to move them in that direction. And And so for me, Precision praise was this aha moment as we were creating it because I started thinking about even like for an example, like when I was a youth pastor, you know, people always are trying to like, like you know, leaders are always trying to correct people into right behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so we'll say to somebody, hey, uh, next time do it this way or I really wish you would not do that anymore. And, here, and here's what happens when you do that, they'll change right there in that moment. They'll change that habit that they have but it won't be something that is lasting. And so mm -hmm. I remember in, in the youth ministry that I was a part of, we we would do meals with our students. So we had all over you know 200 something students coming together and we'd feed all of them. And it was this really fun experience that we'd have together. And my leaders, especially the young adult leaders, they, they would all want to sit together because they all liked each other. And so this is their chance to all hang out and cluster around tables and eat a meal together. And every single Wednesday night, I'd walk up to them and I'd say, hey, uh, I love that you guys enjoy each other, 
but that's not why we're here. We're here for you to go sit with your students right. and build yep. relationships with your students. Right. Yep. And every time I would say that, they would go and sit with their students right away. No problem, David. Let's go. We'll go do that right now. Yep. Never argued with me. Never said that that was a bad idea. But then the next week, what happened? They would be sitting with each other again. They would forget all about it. And so that went on for months and months and months until, until I started realizing if I praise the people that are doing it the way that I hope they're doing it. You know, in a leader meeting, I would say, hey, I just want to give a shout out to Brendan Fox, who is one of my leaders. And man, that guy is eating with students every single time I walk in the room. He's there with his guys eating that meal. And all of a sudden, other people started, yeah. well, wait, I guess, I guess that's what David wants from us. I guess that's the thing he, he's asking us to do. Correcting them every week didn't change the behavior. Yep. Praising him publicly started to change the behavior. Yeah. And when we start to understand the power of praise, people, there's like an endorphin rush when you have someone that, that is leading you, that you look up to, that you admire. There's this endorphin rush when they praise you. It starts to shift the way that you uh, function in the day-to-day. -day. You want to go and get that praise again. Mm -hmm. And that is something that when, you, when a leader can truly unlock that yeah. in their team, it will start to shift the culture of your team. And so we say in this competency, precision praising is how to not only encourage, but how to even course correct your team. How do you use praise, again, to get the best out of them as you move forward? It also helps you to be truthful about the comments you say about people. There are some people on in most every staff, there'll be that one person that is always over-complimenting and always ha tries to say something positive all the time. By thinking of it as a precision kind of a concept, yeah. it keeps you from spending praise too often. Yeah, this is, this is so good. I think even the story that you shared, David, there's the different weight of I'm sharing this in front of a group. I'm sharing this when the person's not around. Mm -hmm. The praise is not necessarily, there's different weight and different outcomes when it's in different settings. And this is really in the book and all the things that we, we do, we're unpacking all of this. This is probably one of my favorite competencies. Well, thank you for joining us for today's episode of the Slingshot Group Podcast. We hope that you've been encouraged by the content and found these conversations meaningful. The best way to stay informed about the Slingshot Group podcast is by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We'd love your feedback. Also, be sure to visit us at slingshotgroup.org to find out more about how we build remarkable teams through staffing and coaching. That's all the time we have for today. Until next time. Oh, 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 oh,